Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello and welcome to Voices of Africa. Today we're going to be talking about the clean energy transition, or perhaps one of the most important contemporary conversations happening anywhere in the world today. I'm delighted to be joined by Elizabeth Wangeshi Chegi. She is a representative of Sustainable Energy for All, an international non-profit organization that was founded by the UN Secretary General in 2011 works closely with the UN, with policymakers and private sector and financiers all over the world to help advance the progress towards Sustainable Development Goal 7, SDG 7, Clean Energy Access for All. Today, Elizabeth is speaking to us from Accra in Ghana. Welcome, Elizabeth. I'm delighted that you could join us today to discuss the work that you're doing on this important topic. Uh, Thank you, Marcus, for having me here. Great. We're going to talk about the clean energy transition. You're obviously in a perfect position to be able to appraise us of a lot of the conversations, but moreover, the actions that are being pursued to drive faster access to energy. It's a systemic problem on the continent. We have more than half the population of the continent of Africa that still doesn't have reliable access to energy. You have spent the best part of your career working to improve not just energy access, but energy efficiency as well. I know that aside from your role as a specialist at Sustainable Energy for All, you are the previous vice chair of the World Green Building Council and currently chair of the Africa Regional Network of the WGBC. This has placed you in the vanguard of helping I think I'm right in saying policymakers, urban planners specifically, in helping to design strategies and plans to ensure that the heavily urbanizing population of Africa can access not only reliable energy, but that cities are developed in a way that is energy efficient and future-proofed to support efforts on climate mitigation and adaptation. So we're going to spend some time, I hope, talking about your work in that area. But before we do, let me invite you, please, to just introduce yourself, where you grew up, and why you've chosen to pursue this career in sustainable development with a particular focus on on energy access and energy efficiency. Great. Thank you for that introduction. And I'm really excited to speak to this. And one of the aspects of joining this podcast is so that others learn from it. And maybe someone somewhere listening can actually, especially women in Africa, can actually put themselves in this position to see they can actually do this and more. So I grew up in Nairobi, Kenya. I would say I was the second generation that moved from the rural areas My great-grandparents moved from the rural areas and moved to Nairobi to build Nairobi. So I saw a beautiful Nairobi. I grew up seeing greenery. I saw an orderly Nairobi, a community-based kind of Nairobi, which is kind of slightly different now with the population increase, the infrastructure there as well. And I always ask myself, what 
happens to the waste that comes out of the houses. That was one thing that connected me with nature. And I could feel and play in the seasons as well. And waste was well looked after, but later on, five, 10 years down the line, started seeing the dilapidation of the towns, which was cause of worry. And my one thing was actually to say, what is the one thing I can do that will make the biggest ripple effect? So it's, it's the curious mind of who decides how we live, how we build, uh, where we build, that took me on to starting off as a, a building services engineer, learning and designing buildings, cities, airports, you name it. Being part of the solution of how people live rather than accepting what was being fed to us. So at some point, moved to the UK with my family in my younger years and spent a lot of time learning and designing buildings. And one of the projects that I'm really proud of, I was part of, was Terminal 5 Heathrow. I got really huge responsibilities. And that's where I started seeing the connection and noting that I need to be part of the environmental solution, the climatic issues have to be taken in on the design phase. We're designing these things for 50 to last for 50, 100 years and noting the impact of the designs and also the regulatory side of things as well. So from there, I moved to Australia, beautiful country, to do similar work, but to really enhance on my knowledge on sustainability because University of Sydney had the best sustainability course. So I did a double master's in building services and sustainability. And as I was growing and working and learning, I realized I really needed to get into the policy and advocacy side of things. So from there, I ended up in the Middle East. Learned a bit of Arabic. I did more designs in Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Bahrain, Oman, you name it. But then I realized there's this continent over here where I was born. And I started wondering what is happening around sustainability? What is, what, what is happening around the planning? The opportunities in Africa started being very clear to me that Africa was in a position to do it right from the beginning rather than trying to adjust later on. And looking at the projected population increase, you know, 1.2 billion more people by 2050 was an issue that I thought wasn't being addressed clearly. So I packed up everything and moved back to Africa, moved back to Nairobi. And that was the biggest, <laughs> let me call it character development, personal growth I had because I was having to kind of get co-founders, like-minded people who already had left the city to come and be part of this growth process. With time, with other co-founders, founded Kenya Green Building Society and also linked it to the World Green Building Council that I had been in touch with in the other countries that I was in and started growing Kenya Green Building Society on the basis of awareness of what the built environment could do for the people and how it's impacting the climate conversations. Education as well, which is professional education. Certification, having measuring systems so that we know how green is green uh, in the built environment. And at some point noted that we were talking to each other, the technical people, we talk to each other, we're happy, we go away, we come back. And once again, we talk to each other. So started looking at the com communication side, the community side as well, and the social benefit side. 
And with that came a lot of effort in linking the work that we were doing for the sustainable built environment, both globally with the World Green Building Council, locally with Kenya Green Building Society, but also on the advocacy part, on policies and regulations. And some of the developers once told me, you know, this green thing, uh, it doesn't belong here. It belongs somewhere else where other people are polluting. It's a totally different story now, more than 10 years later. At the same time, the financiers actually said, look, nobody asks for green finance or incentivized finance, and there's no difference in how they're going to build. And for me, it felt like it gave me purpose. Let's mm. call it that. I needed to, to inform so that we could remain ahead of the game in Africa. And that also influences some of the conversations I have to date. Thank you for that, that overview of your career, taking you from Europe to Australia, back to Africa. I'm interested, you mentioned that you grew up in Nairobi, or was it Nanyuki, but, but in the environments of Nairobi, and you were motivated to contribute in the way that you've, you have through your career to the development of that city specifically, but now obviously you're working at scale, at a global scale using your skill set, your insights and your influence to, to shape policy for the built environment. How has Nairobi developed? I've been traveling to that country for the last 25 years on a fairly regular basis. I remember with sort of nostalgic affection, the green city that I used to visit 20 years ago. And I look at it with a bit of horror now when I see these tall glass, ugly buildings and uh, but I know that we have the, the highway there, which has made a, a, a big impact on congestion and made, made travelling around Nairobi a lot better. Tell us, if you will, about how you viewed the development of that city and your contribution, both through the work that you mentioned with the Kenya Green Building Society. Give us a little flavour of how that city has evolved and how you're contributing to the plans for its future development. So growing up in Nairobi meant that I did see how it was many years ago versus how it is now. And in the last 15 years, spending a lot of time volunteering in the Kenyan Green Building Society as the chairperson. I'm now the immediate past chair and advisory board member. What we have with Nairobi is a city that has grown beyond the vision that was in place 50 years ago. And unfortunately, there's quite a lot of people that were left behind in the growth of Nairobi. So we have a lot of vulnerable communities. There's a lot of decision-making that is made without appropriate data. One thing I normally ask is, look, if you're going to plan Nairobi, what is your vision? Paint a picture for us. Then all of us can align and support it. But paint a picture that will be climate resilient, that we have sustainable energy for all, that we don't detriment the beautiful environment that we have. That is a process that has been ongoing in advocacy. So I joined Sustainable Energy for All a year and a month ago. And the purpose of it was when I saw the opportunities around the built environment advancing towards net zero emissions and the complications and complexities that you have in the built environment with energy being at the center of it. I noted that the message around the nexus of energy, 
climate and development is exactly what I had been trying to do for so long. And with the organization and being the focal point for Kenya, it meant I have fantastic backing and opportunities to, first of all, do a lot of awareness capacity building and use robust data in showcasing what is currently happening, business as usual scenarios, and if we carry on in that manner, where we're going to end up. It is very much at the moment, a concrete jungle. There's a lot of glass buildings that we've inherited from designs of 20, 25 years ago. There is a mindset of ownership and hope in the people. There is a lot of visibility and the work as well that we're doing is creating champions in the local people. Do not accept roads that are not accessible. Do not accept roads that flood every time there's rains. Do not accept lack of water when we have drought, because these solutions exist. Do not accept elements where you're told that you cannot access funding unless you bring title deed. And if you're a woman, you need to do even more to access funding to run your business and be resilient. So these socioeconomic factors that link to climate issues, that link to, for example, Nairobi environment, provide us not just challenges, but opportunities where we can unlock together. And I normally say I like to radically collaborate with anyone who's working in Nairobi on, the, on similar issues and nationally for that matter, to unlock where there is the business as usual thinking of, oh, this is how we've been doing it for 50 years. It hasn't worked. <laughs> Look at that city. And it's going to get worse, especially with the drive that I have little kids who are going to experience a Nairobi that will be a concrete jungle that we wouldn't want to live in. So I think that is a drive. And also in my work, we do policy work where we review the policy, share the gap analysis, give recommendations for the policy. And back in 2019, we did draft the Nairobi Green Building Guidelines, which took quite a bit of time. It was part of awareness raising, but also drafting that vision. And we started with the guidelines before policy so that it would bring in the community of practice and then now work on the policy. So what I hope in this phase, in the next three years, is actually for Nairobi to have its green building policy that would also impact a national green building policy. But over and above that, the fantastic thing about also the national government is that we managed to collaborate and advocate for green buildings to be part of the priority adaptive programs towards the national determined contribution because yeah. buildings give an opportunity of saving 37% of the greenhouse gas emissions globally. And with that, at least we have an anchor of the enhanced nationally determined contribution, talks about green buildings. So how do we actually go ahead and implement? Thank you, yes. I think I'm right in saying that cities are responsible for roughly 70% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And we have a global phenomenon of urbanization. Roughly two thirds of the population will live in cities in the next 10 years, I think it is. Nowhere is the pace of population growth and urbanization faster than it is in Africa. We're seeing really exponential growth in cities like Kinshasa, Lagos, Dar es Salaam, your own Nairobi, and in Ghana too, where you are speaking to us from. To what extent are policymakers and urban planners in those cities that I've just referenced doing exactly as you've said, painting a picture 
of where these cities, what they need to be looking like and catering for 50 years from now? Great. Um, uh, thanks for that question. Definitely, Africa is urbanizing at the fastest rate globally, and the urbanization rate still continues to grow exponentially. What the urban planners are currently doing is learning. And yeah. unfortunately, with the climate crisis, we don't have time to, to learn and then create a vision and then implement it. So what it does is it requires all of us, especially in the professional world, if we know we have experience all the way from the media, the journalists, to the artists, to the engineers, we definitely need to support them. And this is the only way we can quickly change the scenario of the timeline. And that's a lot of the work we're doing with Sustainable Energy for All. We complement what is on the ground. So I've spent, uh, for example, the week here uh, working yeah. with the cooling community because, as you know, Accra is very hot and humid. And we're seeing that the rise in purchase of air conditioning equipment is quite high. But then if the purchase is based on secondhand equipment from other countries that are obsolete, it means we are now not averting the problem. We're just moving it to a different continent. And if Accra receives all this secondhand equipment for air conditioning, it means that the energy consumption will increase Already there is the energy access issue in the region. So we are averting a problem from one region in the world and actually posting it somewhere else. And one thing about pollution and climate change, it doesn't know boundaries, mm -hmm. it doesn't know borders, mm -hmm. it doesn't know visas. So yeah. if we're polluting and moving the pollution to Africa, then the pollution is actually global. And we carry on having the crisis and issue we've had for over 30, 50 years. So the opportunity is to work with government, with customs, with community, create testing laboratories. But over and above that is to create and paint the vision of manufacturing locally. It's not just a matter of being a consumption society for the rest of the life of Africans. So in seeing that there's opportunity to actually access the right equipment as we build the community knowledge, we also look at uh, future manufacturing of equipment in Africa. And that's not in isolation, but in collaboration with the rest of the world. You're very much looking at the energy challenge on, and the climate challenge through the prism of creation of social and economic opportunities as well in the way that you'd referenced there. The opportunity to manufacture locally a system of cooling in this case that would be energy efficient and create jobs locally and domestically. Yes, definitely. The, the nexus of energy itself, and sometimes when we talk about sustainable energy for all, people think about just renewable energy, or when you talk about SDG 7, they only think about energy access. But the, the social economic benefits pinpoint the triple bottom line of people planet profit. But people is key. And especially in Africa, there's a lot of social economic benefits that are not communicated or are not brought forward as part of the impact of the work that most people do. So when we approach these programs as SE4O, we definitely look at emerging economies and we look at the socioeconomic benefits. We might not deliver all the socioeconomic benefits, but we would bring in the partners to work with us on that basis. So working with civil society organizations, community programs, volunteers, and actually creating the community of practice. For example, we've created one for sustainable cooling in Accra or Ghana, so to speak. We're doing the same in Kenya, all the way from national government, looking at 
how and what is happening with a national cooling action plan? Where are we with it? How can we assist to accelerate for that to go forward? And it's not just a plan. It, it needs to have an implementation plan as well. And also it has to have activities that showcase the work happening on the ground, because if it's not on the ground, there's no impact and everything else remains uh, theoretical. I wonder, Elizabeth, could you give us a little bit more flavour of the issue of cooling? It's obviously, it, it's only now when you're speaking of your experience in Accra, it's humid, tropical, sweaty climate. It dawns on me, of course, that all over the continent of Africa, there are cooling systems in place. In my office here in Khabarone, where I'm speaking to you from, we rely heavily on climate control, our ability to cool our offices. What's the scale of the challenge when it comes to ensuring that cities and buildings can put in place the appropriate energy efficient cooling systems? And give us a bit more flavor, if you will. Definitely, and, and I'm more than happy to. Um, so, for example, with cooling, if you look at the SDGs, there, is, there isn't one specifically that focuses on cooling. At the same time, the SDGs are there because we're responding to a warming world. So I call it, there is a blind spot. So with SDG 7, noting that cooling will definitely increase the demand on energy, se for all and partners have really uh, championed the opportunity for access to sustainable cooling for all. And we do have the chilling prospects reports that are released annually. And there's a one from last year where we do our studies globally. And the studies themselves showcase that 1.2 billion people globally are high risk due to lack of access to cooling. So for example, in Africa, we already have the issue around how we're building our cities. So we're trapping in heat in the way we're building our cities and chopping down trees, one issue. The second issue is the materials we use for building. In some areas of the city, they'll have this huge glass buildings. So we are bringing in more heat. In the rural areas, and this is not just a city issue, in the rural areas, you find the iron sheets being used for schools in a lot of the developments, especially in the vulnerable communities. So can you imagine living in Nairobi and working in Nairobi and working in a tin can and expecting to flourish? So this issue is compound to more heat being trapped in buildings, the need for cooling being added. And then with that increase of the need for cooling, we reach out for funds, whether they're efficient or not, air conditioning as well. And that compounds to the energy demand. So you can imagine when it gets hot, everyone turns on their equipment. Um, and that's where you have grid failure ECC. But if we don't have energy efficiency in the consideration of pulling equipment and the high performance, then we carry on emitting more emissions because of the energy demand, which warms the world even more, which makes us need more cooling. Then let's talk about the people who don't have access to funds. What do they do in the rural areas? So, and also in the cities, in the vulnerable communities, so the opportunity is actually to address those issues as early as possible. Number one, two, and you can see why I'm in the middle of this. It goes back to how we design our cities, design for climate and not just current climate, design for future climate. We know that it's a warming world. We know there's going to be, at the moment, there's 1.1 degree increase in temperatures and it's in the IPCC reports. Let's design for what's happening in the future. Let's put people in the path of these climatic issues. We can take advantage of natural ventilation. We can take advantage of 
trees that cool down up to 10 degrees of the city areas, and there's studies being done on that. So if we actually orientate a city towards taking advantage of the climatic and especially passive design elements, then when we put in the artificial solutions, it means we've reduced the demand on them. And if we have to, if we have to have artificial solutions, for example, the ACs, look at sourcing the power from renewable energy solutions. So it's created a thought process away from, oh, we just need energy to run our businesses. It's what we're doing and looking at the uh, human aspect around it. Well, thank you for that, Elizabeth. You gave us a brilliant example of how you're living the motto that I've seen you attribute to your work. What we build today will form the Africa of tomorrow. And you've drawn the clear relationship between the design of cities, buildings, human needs and environmental sustainability and climate mitigation and adaptation with with those examples that you gave us. Thank you. I'm going to turn now to to a point we touched on briefly, but the opportunity to view energy as more than just SDG 7 and and energy access for all and the way that you've just touched on just now as well. Your CEO, that's uh, Damalola Ogunbi, the CEO of SC for All, I saw her make a statement in which she implored policy experts to very much view energy as a social project. And this is the just in the just energy transition. We've touched on it now, but I wonder if you could give further examples of how you are encouraging policymakers and urban planners to model and design projects in a way that deliver meaningful and compounded social benefits for for city dwellers in particular. Uh, Thank you. And I do really look up to my CEO, Damilola. And I think in the same instance of looking around globally at African women being part of this conversation, I made a decision to join SE for All on the basis that this is someone who will understand what's actually happening on the ground. And we really have to keep brainstorming and challenging the business as usual aspect globally of just the thought process that has been existing. And in my case, especially with the work we're doing with SE for All, we have programs like the Energy Transition Investment Plan. The energy transition work and modeling starts with the grassroots data that is compiled. There is also scenarios that are set for 2030, 2040, 2050 and beyond with major sectors in the country being brought together on the basis of the energy demand as well as the social impact elements and opportunities and recommendations that can be put in place so that we don't have just access to energy, but we have the developmental requirements for the countries met as well. And when we come to the table as Africa, the African countries actually know exactly the roadmap, and this creates a very critical roadmap that can be used, the investment that is needed. I think the silo efforts of investing in one project at a time really doesn't move the country forward as quickly as it needs to move. And the social benefit impact side of things as well and prioritizing projects. So that really helps to get that thought process together. And, you know, coming from the side of creating the African narrative with my colleagues, it's also the work for the Africans or the African nations to be very steadfast in what is needed to move forward, to accelerate development, but at the same time, bringing the climate crisis discussion to the table and energy access performance, as you've said as well, it's lowest 
in Africa and sub-Sahara Africa. But more than that as well, especially on the social side of things with the policymakers, for a lot of Africans, it's not a matter of energy access to work. It's actually life and death. You know, we know of situations where people die in hospital because their lights have gone off or people can't access the ICUs, they can't access equipment or the generator. So it brings in this social element of energy being part of people's lives and livelihoods. We've seen that policymakers make decisions on the basis of maybe their own experiences. I mean, if you've never lived in rural Africa and seen lights go off for quite a few days and try to get to a hospital and there's no fuel to get to the hospital or you get to the hospital, there's no lights, so no one can treat you. Or the vaccine that your child was supposed to have has expired because there's no cooling and electricity then your decision-making process will be slightly different. Unfortunately, those people who have those experiences don't have the opportunity to get to the global table to actually say, this is what we're going through. So when you make your decision on energy transition and energy just transition, for us, energy access means I live or die. I spent a lot of time in, in South Africa this year. On my last occasion, I was with my wife and we experienced load shedding. And uh, my wife pointed out that never had she expected load shedding to have quite such an implication on all aspects of one's daily life, because you can't get water when there's no power, because the pumps don't work. The emergency services don't work because the digital communications network is down to connect you to them. So implications all across the board, that unless in the way that you've said, unless you've experienced it yourself, it's very hard to understand the full context and implications. So thank you for drawing that to our attention. When we think about the opportunity for social justice, I was thinking explicitly about women and youth. And you mentioned the inspiration that is Damalola in attracting you to SE for All and working there. I know that as SE for All, you're deliberate in trying to ensure that women are better represented in the debate, in the conversations and in the solutions for the energy transition. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that SE for All is doing to ensure that women are better represented? Because I know from what I've read that actually the renewable energy sector still lags when it comes to representation for women in the industry. And it's an industry that is going to grow exponentially, we anticipate over the years ahead, it's growing fast. And like the technology sector where women representation of women still lags, we need to be placing more effort and onus, being more deliberate in ensuring that this sector is better represented by women. So can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing, perhaps to supply mentorship or training or, or skills development for women in particular? Uh, definitely. And it's very much a core aspect and a cross-cutting core opportunity that we do plug into all our programs at se for all So gender mainstreaming is a key aspect, especially looking at women and the opportunities around how we can support women to, to be part of the solution, if I may call it that. For example, I think back in 2020, there was training that was done in Kenya of 100 women on the energy side of opportunities. And when you talk about energy side of opportunities, it's not just the professional, it's also skills development on renewable energy all the way to installation. Quite recently in Sierra Leone, 
We had 12 young women trained in solar PV design installation, and they actually went out to the field and installed in the powering healthcare sector programs that we have. They've graduated, which is fantastic. The fantastic thing about, you know, social media as well is, for example, Kenya said, yes, we want the same. And we're looking very soon to have the same training for women. This will be for around six to nine months. And the trainees themselves will undergo through all the programs that SE4L has on energy and our partners have on energy. And the opportunity is to have them assimilated into the different organizations for them to actually proceed and improve the numbers that we have on women participating in energy. To add to that, the program itself is called Women and Youth at the Forefront. So not forgetting the youth as well in this conversation. And we do have various youth programs and we do have a youth team lead and we have a women at the forefront team lead as well, ensuring that in all the programs that we have at SE4ROL, we constantly, consistently support women and youth as well. So I mentioned Kenya, and the same is going to happen in Ghana as well. And I'm talking about this happening this year, where we actually take and intentionally train this young women and also ensure and support that they join the community of practice. Because we've seen sometimes beyond capacity building, it stops there um, instead of continued mentorship. So I'll be shadowed by a few young women very soon. And when we do a podcast like this, I would definitely ask for a few minutes for them to also speak because I would be doing my part as well in creating the platform for more of these young women to come on board. I'm looking forward to it and actually encourage a lot of the organizations, whether if they are unable to really support it, to come to us so that we can collaborate and see how we can support women and youth. Well, good for you, Elizabeth. I should perhaps at this point in time say, whilst it's only my voice from the Africa practice side that you're hearing on this podcast, I am completely empowered by women. It is an all-female team, with my exception, who help me put this podcast together, schedule the interviews, prepare the questions and get me up to speed and then help in the production and promotion. So it's great to hear the emphasis that's been placed there and the specific initiatives and programs to bring women and and youth to the fore in this burgeoning sector. Earlier, you touched on when we were talking about cooling, you referenced the the conversations that you're part of this week in Accra in working out um, how Ghana can put in place solutions, perhaps to find alternative ways to cool buildings and, and cities, not relying on the importation of what is frankly, obsolete technology. You referred there to the opportunity for local manufacturing and to create modern cooling systems locally. I know that SE for All has placed a lot of energy and emphasis on the opportunities for renewable energy manufacturing in Africa. The onus being there on creating solutions locally but manufacturing locally and creating jobs and supporting the evolution of manufacturing in domestic markets. There's a specific initiative, the Africa Renewable Energy Manufacturing Initiative that SE4ALL launched earlier this year. Some pretty lofty ambitions that have been set out there. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Africa Renewable Energy Manufacturing Initiative, those ambitions and, and what we can expect? Uh, Definitely. I'm more than happy to speak to the Africa Renewable Energy Manufacturing Initiative uh, that was launched in January this year, noting that 
Africa's demand for power is projected to surge in the coming decades, twice uh, the power will be needed by 2030 and eight times by 2050. And also this is driven by definitely population increase that we've spoken about and also industrialization of the African countries, but at the same time, opportunity to decarbonize and really respond to the climate crisis. So with OREMI, as we call it in short, the opportunity is first of all to look at the need for renewable energy in Africa with this growth. We definitely need to reduce the amount of energy sourced from fossil fuels and also lowering the carbon emissions in the future. Then by building local manufacturing capabilities, we create employment while we're growing the economy and there's the added social economic benefits on that. And opportunities to export partnerships with other countries. That's why I said the opportunity here is to collaborate with those who have skills and experience as well. So we've also seen that the transition for the renewable energy technologies and actually manufacturing them locally, being local being Africa, will create three times as many jobs as what fossil fuels investments currently has. And at the same time, it will create 14 million energy transition jobs in Africa by 2030. And compounding that with the women and youth element, where we have over 70% of the population in Africa is youthful at this point in time. And it gives great opportunity for that. So the focus here was definitely, we know there's nuances, there has been challenges, especially what is coming across from a lot of the countries on the basis of manufacturing in Africa is the cost of electricity, despite a lot of the minerals coming from Africa. So this initiative is driving towards acceleration to unlocking and tangling these complex issues and really looking at the benefits of how we can actually proceed with the different components. So there's, yes, there's solar PV conversation, there's the battery conversation. I, I know that the wind manufacturers are also, you know, starting to look at this. And what's interesting as well is that the EV electric vehicle manufacturers are also looking at, oh, there's opportunity here because these batteries, we source a lot of the minerals from Africa. So how can we improve the element of rather than exporting raw materials is actually setting up factories that could work on the raw materials and see how we can benefit the economies around that. The initiative itself has seen the challenges and has documented the challenges. I'd rather like to focus on where it's actually going. Uh, so there's four key pillars of the initiative, which is policy, you know, working with national, local government to create an enabling environment. And as I mentioned previously, it comes to there's opportunities around capacity building, the advocacy, the convening and getting everyone in the room to say why and how can we unlock renewable energy manufacturing in Africa. Then there's people. We've talked a lot about people on this podcast, which is fantastic. So capacity building, the knowledge, and then being part of the supply chain and building Africa's renewable energy manufacturing workforce. Then opportunities also lie around these companies that have started or are trying to do the positive elements around renewable energy manufacturing, albeit could be manufacturing from source, it could be assembly as well. So seeing how we can accelerate and support their efforts and also incubate 
some projects and incubate some policies around this. The fourth pillar is anchoring and attracting renewable energy manufacturers to Africa. And I think the learning from this and being part of this initiative, especially supporting the countries that we currently have, which is Kenya, Ghana, Nigeria, Morocco, Egypt, and South Africa, is the learnings from, for example, and you know, this has come out again from conversations with the manufacturers and companies on the ground is, yes, we did see what happened during COVID-19 where, you know, we couldn't access equipment. Nothing was being shipped anywhere. No one was traveling. So we're here in need of solar PV panels, batteries. We have the money, but we can't get it across. And similar to, for example, the vaccines, those other countries that had enabling policies to prioritize how they would actually receive the vaccines. And similarly with renewable energy, if you have the opportunity to to buy renewable energy or source it from other countries and you can't actually source it, it really starts making you think about why not manufacture locally. And the good thing is we've found through this initiative and focusing this work, we have found companies from small organizations trying to find uh, local solutions to energy and electricity generators moving away from that one pot basket uh, solution of what they're currently doing to say, even if it's recycling of batteries, let's look at how we can recycle batteries that will come out, the electric vehicles and the solar PV systems. Others are assembling solar PV panels as well. And the opportunity is to have this Africa trade cross-boundary support as well. Fascinating. Thank you for giving us more information about Aremi in in the way that you did. Those figures you give are very exciting. The prospect of 14 million jobs through the energy transition by 2030, that's within the next six to seven years, um, and three times as many jobs as are currently availed by the, the fossil fuel industry. My assumption is that if we can produce cheap renewable energy also on the continent, and in certain areas, I believe that we can produce it more cheaply than other regions of the world, then we've really got a competitive advantage and something that should attract foreign direct investment to manufacture locally at source because transporting power is expensive. So if you can manufacture close to the energy source and then export to your markets globally, That's the most efficient mechanism of doing it. That is tantalizing for a continent that is in desperate need of industrialization and creating better livelihoods and economic prospects for a fast growing population. So it's lovely to make those linkages in the way that you did. Thank you. This brings us to the end of our conversation, but traditionally, and I'm I'm going to stick with tradition, we ask our guests what they are reading at the moment, or in this era of podcasts, what they listen to on a regular basis or would recommend to our audience. So can I invite you to respond to that? Oh, thank you for the question. And actually, I'm one of those people who doesn't like going to the bookstores because I go in for one book and end up with 50 books. (laughs) And from a whole range, you know, um, a whole range of books. And actually what I have on my desk right now is... Give and Take by Adam Grant. And this was recommended by a friend of mine. And they said, why helping others drives our success. 
And I think um, I prioritize it over the other books that I bought because it, it reads to the kind of work we're doing because there's your daytime job, there's a voluntary aspect, there's a social benefit aspect and creating opportunities beyond your nine to five, let me call it that. And uh, listening wise, there's a podcast that looks at the African cultural history. Sorry, I forget its name. <laughs> I can check it and let you know. So every so often I listen to that. And in my travels as well, I listen to ebooks on the flights. So I definitely am one to, to look at and hope to get more information and actually say to someone, if there's a way you can get all the information in the books as a drip into your body, into your brain through osmosis, I would really love that. You're a very curious individual, constantly learning, which is yes, yeah, fantastic to hear. Well, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. You're very evidently a purpose-driven individual who's devoting their career to shaping how our city specifically, but how our continent more broadly develops. You've decided to use your technical and professional capabilities to support organizations at scale. So you've chosen not to pursue a career within an individual organization and make a you know a good living perhaps in the in, in the private sector but instead you're making I hope a good living and influencing a lot of people through the work that you're doing at the apex with policymakers with industry leaders with financiers and in global system working closely as I know you do with the UN so it's been a delight to hear about the work that you're doing I don't think I reference but I do think I'd like to reference now that you're a unique individual whose passion and zeal for the work that you do has come across in this podcast, but it's also been recognized, hasn't it? Not just in terms of your role at SE for All now, but in the award that you were granted a few years back now as the recipient of the World Green Building Council Chairs Award. So thank you for the outstanding contribution that you're making to building the global green building environment. And thank you for drawing the interrelationship as you have between how we go about designing cities, buildings, and human and environmental sustainability, and the importance of all of this for addressing the wicked crisis of our time, which is, of course, the climate crisis. So thank you, Elizabeth. And thank you for having me here. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.